Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. You know if you've been listening to this show for a while that one of my favorite athletes is Aaron Rodgers for a lot of different reasons, but it starts with an admiration of the craftsmanship at the position and the learning he's tried to do on this journey in public. So I like asking him questions outside of football, and I know you want to hear about his offseason. It was eventful and it was dramatic, and I will ask him about it before the interview is over but i'd like to ask him and i think he comes on with us for extended periods because i like to ask him about life and things he has learned so he is now engaged to be married and the first question i have for him and thank you for joining us aaron on south beach sessions the first question i have for you is what can you tell us you've learned about love what has the path toward love been like for you yeah great start to that thank you so much dan oh man First and most important is love yourself. After that, everything comes easy. And along the path, where would you say that that got easiest or where was it hardest, right? Because I imagine as you're becoming an adult and growing, there are spots uh, where you identify with what you're doing professionally and perhaps you don't love yourself the way that you might have otherwise. Yeah, that's a good point. I think a lot of it is just reconditioning, uh, you know, kind of uh, shedding the conditioning of our youth, recognizing patterns that we learned uh, as young people. Um, you know, some patterns were directly based on interactions with our parents or friends. Some patterns were survival in whatever environment. I'm talking about like maybe some for some people probably violent situations or dangerous situations. For others, just survival of the day-to-day status quo. And recognizing those patterns and trying to make uh, conscious changes to those in the moment uh, to allow you to overcome uh, fears, uh, emotional trauma, um, anything from your childhood that still kind of impacts the way you see and view and interact in the world today. When did you start dissecting some of that stuff? Um, It's been a while I've been working on those things. I think more recently I was able to find kind of words for the process. I went through a uh, uh, a, uh, a weekend uh, with uh, the Hoffman Institute, which is uh, you know long been uh, known for I think the last forty plus years as uh, an institute that that helps you uh, with uh, childhood traumas, emotional um, issues, kind of just loving yourself better and growing. Uh, they have week-long retreats. They have shorter stuff, and I took the two-day this off-season, and and it was impactful, and it kind of gave me the words to what I've been working on for a number of years now. What led you there? I think in general, when COVID hit in early 2020 and the travel that I love doing slowed down, I started to just really dive into my other favorite passion, and that's learning, and different subjects I was getting into and books I was reading and and kind of spending more time uh, doing those things 
instead of, you know, binge-watching shows, which I did, you know, I had to make sure I watched Tiger King and some of the ones, you know, to keep up with the, you know, with the conversations with some of my friends. But um, in the meantime, a lot of books and and studying and learning and and classes and different things and just came uh, highly recommended through a few good friends of mine, this, uh, the Hoffman Institute. I've been wanting to get on the schedule for a while. It just happened uh, this off-season that, you know, I had I had plenty of time to do it and, and took a weekend and just uh, kind of shut the world off and and, uh, and did it. How many epiphanies were in there? Because I imagine your life goes too fast to be able to, that it all got slowed down by pandemic, and then you can finally apply some of that substantive will toward, wait a minute, maybe I can look at my patterns here and see some places where I'm screwed up that I might not, well, I don't even need to judge it that hard, harshly. Just look at some things that are in my patterns that I might want to correct. Yeah, totally. I mean, Dan, that's exactly what it's all about. It's about compassion uh, and and forgiveness, I think, for uh, yourself and some of the t- decisions you made as a young person, and how that kind of impacted the way you look at the world, and the way you look at relationships, and family, and friends, and and uh, and kind of that conditioning. A lot of times, when you say conditioning, it, it might have a negative, a severely negative connotation. But um, a lot of conditioning means just that the patterns that were developed uh, to kind of uh, survive or get through certain times, uh, and some of them can be negative and and uh, you know, have some devastating results, and some of them just are things that kind of get into your subconscious and and kind of operate yourself in autopilot. And I think it's that awareness and understanding um, that kind of gets you more in your body and more present. And when you're more present, uh, you know, there's a lot of life around you to figure out and to learn and to see and and areas to grow. And I'm really thankful for for that time to be able to do it and, and the interactions I had with people in the class and and uh, excited about uh, doing some more stuff with them later. Did you know about being present 10 years ago? Is it something that you'd considered or was the male identity and the ego so tied up in quarterbacking that it's just not, you're all always off to the next thing, the next game, or were you aware of presence and the need of the power of now before that? Definitely not in the same way. I mean, I think growing up in the in the Christian church, there's different words for those type of things and and ideas about uh, meditation and uh, being present and spirituality don't really fall in the dogma that's taught. I always had ideas and interests outside of that kind of strict constructionism, um, and I enjoyed. Uh, you know, reading and learning about other religions and practices and mindfulness and meditation. And I think it was when I started to get into those things, I realized how important the idea of being present and what that actually is, uh, you know, acted out in your life, um, how important that was. So that's been a process, I think, in the last decade of more of that kind of uh, uh, interest in and those type of things, and it just kind of gets furthered uh, every single year and off season with travel and interest and learning and and uh, relationships and, and growth. Is it in the huddle with you? Is this presence like while you while you're in it in the fourth quarter? Are you breathing meditatively through the moment, or are you on the next play? Like, how does this work? How do you find serenity in the middle of the violence? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, about five years ago, I think it was, uh, I was. Uh, learning about uh, 
the box breathing and how important that is in calming your heart rate. And a lot of it was through yoga, and I've always enjoyed doing yoga, and it was uh, some some practices that I was getting into um, at various points during the workout or the stretching uh, to kind of settle your heart rate and kind of get back into uh, a more calm state. And I started doing it in times where I felt stressed on the sidelines, times where I felt anxious before two-minute drives, before the game, just working on these, these, these uh, just doing box breathing, uh, inhale for a certain amount of time, hold for a certain amount of time, exhale for a certain amount of time, hold for a certain amount of time, um, you know, whether it's four seconds or working up to even in a higher, uh, you know, a higher uh, inhale and hold and exhale and hold. That stuff has, has really helped me, I think, over the last, you know, half decade of, of uh, being more present in those moments, being less stressed, less anxiety, more focused, uh, more, you know, able to have my thoughts readily come to mind and and my actions uh, be as quickly as I need them to be. When you're playing, do you ever have the feeling when you're connected to that particular presence? And you didn't mention whether the breathing is something that can be summoned in the huddle or when dropping back and moving around. But do you ever feel like sort of Neo from the Matrix? I'm connected to the universe. This is meant to go this way because my confidence and my sculpting of skill will make this moment uh, serene for me. Peaceful. I'm very good at this. Um, I, there's definitely those those types of thoughts. Um, there's the, you know, the flow state, as it's been called by kind of sports psychiatrists now over the last, you know, couple of decades. Um, that you know, I do believe it's kind of it's been the zone forever. You know, you're in the zone. What is the zone? The zone to me is that zen-like state where you're able to be completely in your body and completely in control of your movements and actions and decision making. And that's fun to get into. That doesn't happen all the time. Um, I think in those moments, things do slow down uh, everything from your the game to your breathing. And that's when you're most calm and most relaxed and and your sense and senses are heightened to the max. And that's kind of what we're going for every single week. Doesn't happen, but that's what, that's what the, the goal is. Back to my original question then, you couldn't really know what it was like to love someone else until you more completely loved yourself is what you're saying. Exactly. And how can you allow someone to love you when you don't love yourself the way you need to? And you were not emotionally available to love until recently or that that kind of no, self-love? No, I think I was. I, I, no, I think I was. I just think it's, it's uh, you know really recognizing patterns and then being better at uh, forgiveness and compassion for yourself. It's tough for perfectionists to have that because you always feel like something is missing or broken or off. And I think what you learn, uh, what I've learned is that even as a fixer or someone who enjoys continuing to grow and learn, at the heart, a lot of times, of a fixer's mentality is the idea that I am first broken, that we are broken. And I think that in itself is a never-ending cycle of negative self-talk. And that's what I had to kind of get past because uh, you'll never get out of that uh, cycle unless you come to the understanding that you're not actually broken. You just have patterns that have not served you very well during this time of, of your life and until you learn to forgive yourself and have compassion for yourself and love yourself better 
you're always going to feel like you have to do something to improve yourself instead of just love yourself a little bit better. Is there any pattern above all others that you look at and say that was the one that was most harmful to me, most destructive, or, or required the most compassion and care from me to not view as broken? Well, I think just what I just said there, Dan, and, and it's a bigger a bigger pattern, but but the, the idea of perfectionism and what that means and and getting uh, love from others only when I was perfect or if I, you know, was, you know, without mistake. Uh, and if I wasn't perfect and I was a failure, I think that mentality definitely hasn't served me and didn't serve me for a number of years. Now, it drove me at, at one point, it drove me to be my best and to be the best. But uh, in the end, it's it's an ultimate destructive pattern because it involves so much negative self-talk that it's hard to have that gratitude that I, is so important to me now that to be able to see the beauty in life around you if you're constantly frustrated about what you didn't do, what you don't have, what you're missing. It's too unforgiving, right? Totally. Yeah, there's there's no room for uh, for mistakes. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. How did you become a perfectionist? Uh, well, I don't think even a per- perfectionist would never say they became a perfectionist. They're always they're always wanting more and one better. Um, I was around, you know, one of the one of the greatest coaches uh, of football and Jeff Tedford in college, and and Coach Tedford is a perfectionist, and he was so demanding, and it pushed me to be my absolute best, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, you know, go back to high school. Uh, Ron Souza was my uh, baseball coach my senior year and my one of my football coaches as a sophomore. Same thing. You know, he pushed me to be perfect, and he expected perfection because he saw it was it was possible in, in me and, and helped me see it in myself. And I think those were all incredible positives that, that pushed me to be my best. Um, but there has to be on some level some understanding of balance and and perspective uh, when you've achieved uh, your potential, um, that it's okay to enjoy it and it's not complacency to be thankful for what you've accomplished and to have gratitude for the situation you're in and to give yourself compassion when you make mistakes because actually it's, it's a redefinition of what failure is. Failure is not uh, you know, tied to winning and losing. In my opinion, it's, it's failure is, is not giving your best or preparing your best or being as focused as you need to be. Just like success isn't always winning and losing, sometimes your best on that day is not going to be good enough. And for a perfectionist, that's really hard to swallow because you always think, if I'm at my best, we're going to win, I'm going to win. And it's, it involves a lot of that compassion and, and, uh, and perspective. And, and I'm thankful, I'm so, so, so thankful for Coach Tedford and Coach Souza and Coach Jackson and Coach Odell and Coach Pitzker and all the amazing, you know, men along the way in my football journey. Um, and I'm also thankful for the perspective that, you know, I don't have to be perfect. 
Are you able to apply that compassion to like third down at the end of last season, 10 yards away? Should you run? Should you not run? Are you able to have perspective about that? Or do you spend the, the first two months of the offseason punching yourself in the face about that? <laughs> yeah, man. I'm going to give myself like a two and a half or three year window to have compassion for moments like that. I mean, shoot. I'm still mad about 2014 and the NFC Championship game. So I'm gonna I'm gonna reserve judgment on on some of those things. Um, but yeah, that's you know stuff like that's still frustrating for sure. Uh, and look, I'm I'm disappointed. Um, I don't think it you know not needing to be perfectionist doesn't take away the competitiveness. The competitiveness is still gonna be pissed about that game and the fail Mary game and. USC in 2004 and, you know, NFC Championship in 14 and 20. Let me quiz you because I've been told that you, and I've asked you about this before, I don't know if you can remember every touchdown and interception that you have thrown in college in the pros, but it is said that you can, that you can, that if I gave you, if I started testing you on this, you'd remember what you threw in a game in 2008 or your last season at Cal. Is that possible that if I started quizzing you like that, you'd be able to photographically remember all of it? I don't know, Dan. I mean, I'd like to. I don't know. Maybe. All right. Well, I imagine the Jeopardy freak in you, though, probably can do some of this stuff. So let me see. Before I do that, do you have any Jeopardy opinions on this uh, this snake, Mike Richards? It seems like he got in there and he stole everybody's job. With uh, What is happening there with Jeopardy? Were you furious that this Mike Richards took that hosting job from everybody? Well, I like Mike. Um, I enjoyed working with him. We had a good time. Um, I think... Uh, you know, he was uh, obviously he's, he's been a host before. Um, he obviously wanted the job. You know, he uh, he did a couple weeks on there as a guest host. Uh, there were a lot of uh, other people in the mix uh, to host, and you know, Sony wanted to wanted to go with him. I think he's gonna do a really good job. Um, I like him a lot as a person. You know, he's been EPN for Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Uh, the show, just like even with Alex, although Alex is insanely, you know, will always be famous for the show. He always wanted to be introduced as the host, not the star of Jeopardy. And, and Jeopardy has always been about the players. And it's the host job to just kind of take you on the journey in the trivia land. And I, and I know Mike uh, is going to do a nice job. That was very nice of you. Very diplomatic. You did not call him a snake. Let's go to 2016. You had a loss against Dallas. You lost 30-16. to 16. Do you remember touchdown and interceptions in that game? I remember we were wearing throwback unis, and I think it was the first time we lost in the throwbacks. Go back and check that one out. It seems correct. So you remember what you were wearing, but not necessarily what it is that you threw, whether or not you threw touchdowns or interceptions in that game. I, I definitely threw uh, an interception in that game to uh, Barry Church, I think. Uh, How far back one. can I go? Am I testing your memory here too much to do this to you? Or am I tra- treating no, you too I mean, much do like this? Do you have it in front of you? Is it, is it right or not? Well, I have that you only threw one interception in that game. Yes. I don't have in front of me who you threw it to, but you seem to remember well, it. I think, I, think, I, think it was, I think it was Church. 42 how about 2000 how about 2013 you're playing against the Bengals you lose that game 34 30 
Oh, God, that's one of the most painful games of all time. That was such a... 34-30, right? Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah, we were, we were up like 16... We were down 16 nothing or some shit, and we came all the way back and took the lead by a bunch, and then they came back and beat us. Uh, Franklin was our back. He had like over 100 yards. He had like some big 80-yard run at some point in the game. And then... Somebody fumbled, and I missed a tackle, and they ran it back for a touchdown, yeah. And I always remember that one because Dave missed. Dave Bakhtiari had a bad cut on the last play on fourth down. He used to always, after that, he's like, don't make me cut. I'm terrible at cutting. And they had those two huge ends, Michael Johnson and Carlos Dunlap. And I think it was Johnson on our left side. And I was throwing a quick pass out to the left, and he knocked it down. That was a really, really frustrating game. And I think I threw Cincinnati. I always throw picks against Cincinnati, so I probably threw... I know I threw one to Leon Hall for sure on the right sideline. Uh, <laughs> that is probably amazing. Threw another one. Yes, you did. Probably did. threw another one that game, too. Dunlap is scary. Do you have a guy that you think of just one time you lined up there and that serenity went out the window? Because you're like, this guy, come on. This is ridiculous. This person is, is physically just... He's just a menace. Yeah, Javon Curse. Javon Curse, we played him in 2000. I mean, the freak, you know. And we played him in 2008 at Tennessee, I believe it was. And and first play of the game, we're in this like condensed formation, and we're throwing kind of quick game. They bring empty pressure, so we squeeze on the right side. And I get the ball off, and I get knocked down by I think somebody on the left side, one of the D tackles, and he just rocked me. And I grew up, like you know, grew up. I was in high school, you know, college, watching the freak and. Always a big fan of him. So, like, seeing him, it was kind of – it's always that surreal thing when you see somebody you've watched on TV and now you're playing against them or hanging out with them. And he rocked me. And he said, stay down, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, this going to be a long day, man. This is going to be a long you, day. You thought about taking his advice. You know what? Maybe I will do that. Maybe staying down is the way. Yeah, He's I just was... being wise. <laughs> Oof, man, I was hurting. I was hurting after that one. I was like, man, it's going to be a tough game today. 2004. You know, tough, though. We lost in overtime. You do remember all of this. 2004, you're at Washington. You win 42-12. to 12. You are playing in college. Do you remember what you did in that game? Yeah. Uh, well, I had my longest run of my career against Washington. I think that day I rushed. I think it was like a... I think I might have gotten the 30s. I think it was like a 33-yard run, maybe, something like that. Um, very proud of that. But previous year, we'd had like 700 yards of offense against them at home in 2003. In 2004, we played up there. It was the only time I played up in Husky Stadium. And I had a good game, but I had a couple. I think I had three touchdowns and two picks that day somehow. You had two touchdowns and two picks. Close enough, though, because it was a two long touchdowns. time. I, I might have had a rushing touchdown. You got it right, though, on the 36. Uh, you got the 36-yard run you had in that game. I want to ask you a 36, handful. 36, yeah. Congratulations on that. Thank you. I'm really, really proud of that. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! 
Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to ask you a handful of football questions, even though sometimes I know that I can bore you with those. When Drew Brees says, quote, sometimes trying to be great is lonely, do you identify with that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I know the gist of what he's talking about. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, everybody's experience is different, so I don't really know what what he's referring to. I think... He's yeah, referring to the excellence. It. He's referring to how much obsessive compulsive ticking is required in preparation for what you guys do, the 16-hour days, the meticulous memorization of everything, the knowing everyone's position. He's talking about how you have to work harder to play that position than anybody else does. But there's no doubt about the, the focus and the responsibility. I've always been a firm believer in balance um, on and off the field. That's served me well over the years. Um, I think... Uh, you know, my career kind of speaks for itself in that sense. Some guys, you know, enjoy getting in there at 5 in the morning on, on Tuesdays and going through a grind of that stuff. That's never been my MO. Um, I've always been a hard worker and a hard studier. But I think there's time for ball and there's time for balance. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's worked for me over the years. You know, I'm definitely involved in the, you know, the game plan on Mondays and Tuesdays, putting it together. But... Uh, I do believe there's time for, uh, you know, there's time for balance and and off the field stuff to get your mind right to be able to be your best on the field. Can it be told now? Is the statute of limitations up? Your bad season was the one with two interceptions. That's the one you had two interceptions all season, twenty five touchdowns. But that's the one people look at and say, okay, maybe he's aging there, maybe he's injured, uh, maybe he's not quite what he was statistically in terms of excellence. That's an absurdly good season. What's the question, Danny? What kind of state were you in that season? Why did that happen? Why were you a lesser quarterback than the one who won the MVP this year? I, well, look, every year is different, and I think that was you know one of my better years um, based on a lot of different factors. You know, I played the season with a tibial plateau fracture and a torn MCL twice for most. You know, I, I tore it, it got better, and retoured um, and played. You know, played the season with it. Uh, I think from an offensive standpoint, uh, personnel-wise, we obviously weren't the same. So it was my job that year. We had to take care of the football because we had to win games by not turning it over and and finding a way to put a couple drives together. Um, obviously, that was a tough year for us, six, nine, and one. Uh, but I, I do feel like what I needed to do that year in order for us to have the best chance to win was to take care of the football. Um, other years, I've been able to freewheel it a little bit more, um, like last year, and still take care of the ball. But 
uh, that year, um, you know, we didn't uh, didn't have the same type of horses and, and didn't have the same team makeup, and obviously we struggled. What do you regard as the fairest criticism of you as a player? Fairest criticism? I don't know, Dan. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to, to what the, the, the lines are out there. I think that the standard that I've set for myself uh, the baseline is is probably higher than most guys. So comparatively, uh, I'm not really compared a lot to my contemporaries. I'm compared to myself in my 2011 season and my 2014 season. Now my 2020 season, and that's fine. Um, I don't I don't mind that at all. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly, you know, what those are. I think. Every time there's been certain criticisms, I feel like I've done a pretty good job of uh, pushing them back. Um, whether it's can't win a big game, did that, can't, you know, you know, doesn't, you know. I, the one thing I don't understand is is when people talk about, you know, or have talked about in the past about my decision making, like I'm too conservative. Uh, I don't necessarily understand that one. I don't know if that's a – that just doesn't have a lot of intelligence around it, too. You know, when the position is – I feel like I've been a part of revolutionizing the position because I take care of the football at a, a rate that no one has before um, in the history of playing the sport. And now you look around the league. When I first got in the league, there were plenty of guys who were throwing 20-plus interceptions in a season. That wasn't unheard of, and it wasn't grounds for a guy getting benched. You know, now there's multiple guys every single year through less than 10. I mean, that that was unheard of for a long time. I think when, you know, when I threw 30 and, and less than 10 the first time, there was very few guys who had done that, you know, in the history of the league. So uh, the league has changed, and taking care of the ball is the most important thing. And being opportunistic as well obviously helps. And I think last year I did that pretty good. Let you go in a second here. Media, you said, misrepresented you this offseason. How did we misrepresent you? Oh, I don't know if I, I don't feel like, you know, I said the media misrepresented me. I feel like a lot of people spoke on my behalf who had no idea what they were talking about. Um, you know, there were a lot of stories that I'd seen during the duration uh, that were just false. Um, and I get that in the, in the cycle, people wanted to say certain things. Um, I guess what I really wanted, and I've said this, is I wanted to take my time with with speaking, and and I do believe that there's wisdom in silence, and I don't think that anything that I could have said at various times would have represented me or the situation or the organization the right way. Instead, I wanted to do things behind closed doors, have conversations with members of the organization behind closed doors. And, yes, there were things that got out, uh, not things that I wanted to get out. Um, I'm not sure where a lot of that stuff was coming from. A lot of stuff was false. I've talked a few times now about what was true. I was contemplating retirement. I was frustrated with the team. But, you know, I wasn't going to cheat my teammates or the organization and fans and come back if I wasn't 100% all in. And that's why... I decided to come back because I could get to that point. And, you know, again, I think it's a good lesson for everybody that, you know, maybe maybe it's okay 
that a player is not ready to talk or doesn't want to talk at, a, at, at certain points. And, and maybe we don't have to fill to fill a narrative up of conjecture, you know, and try and be the the whoever it is, the Schefters or the Rappaports of the world, and, and have some breaking breaking news. Um, let's just maybe cool our jets a little bit and, and understand at some point, you know, all or most will be revealed. It just takes uh, patience. When it's something as important to me and the organization as our situation was, you know, I felt like it was important to take time with it. Can it be said now how close, the closest you were to retiring within that? Well, I mean, I felt I felt going into the weekend before camp that I was, I was 50-50. I said that to the uh, serious the other day. Um, I don't care if people don't believe that. I mean, I, that's that's true. Uh, there were some things that got me to 50-50 for sure. And, you know, I spent a couple of days in silence and, and meditation and, and contemplation and, and really felt like that I should come back. There's a lot of opportunities for growth and, and exciting things in Green Bay. And, and, uh, that's that felt like the right thing to do i'm happy for you happy that you have found love happy that you're getting married happy that you've rebounded to have an mvp season and we'll get you out on this because stugatz has been in the shadows begging me to ask you if indeed you saw him in tahoe and you gave him an extra vigorous hug that he describes as partially sensual because you were so happy to see him (laughs) i was super juiced to see him i haven't seen him in person and i don't even know how long um so yeah i was i was super pumped to see him and i gave him an uh overly excited hug i think but i'm glad he enjoyed it zero sensuality in it but but uh definitely excited to see him always appreciate your time sir thank you for giving us this much time always appreciate it you bet buddy thanks for having me on always enjoy our conversations with aaron probably not enough laughter there i'd like more laughter with him but i tend to like to explore the introspective spaces with him. He's done clearly a lot of learning about himself, and he has had some of those public-private issues where family stuff that we still don't know totally about has shaped his patterns and the person that he is, and he's done a lot of learning about himself and about self-love. But Whittingham, as someone who was here throughout all of this, what were the interesting things, the most interesting takeaways? I had not heard him say that he was that kind of injured the season that people were wondering whether he was done or spent at a quarterback. He gave details I had not heard before. Yeah, two MCL tears, what he said. I think a, a, a tibia injury as well. Yeah, I think because it was funny how he kind of went back. You, What are you trying to say, Dan? And I think what you're basically trying to say is that decline that we thought was a decline was not actually. It was you incredibly hurt in a team that you had to figure out a way to grind out whatever it is you're going to grind out, but that was not the beginning of your decline. It was just a down season because you were incredibly injured, and it's funny how rarely athletes want to accept the out of injury, right? They view it as an excuse. They want to say, well, I was hurt, therefore I was bad that season, and Aaron clearly did not want to until you kind of pressed him on, well, that wasn't you. We we didn't see you, and two years later, at an older age, at an MVP season, how did that happen? And he views it as one of the proudest accomplishments of his career to have had that season in that physical state. I also thought it was super interesting that he said a week before training camp, he was very much 50-50, that he was that close to retiring. I did not 
I did not have access to information. Now, he said he had said it before, but I didn't see it reported anywhere that he was that close to retiring. Yeah, and just how he kind of discusses a deliberation over that of... He said, sat in a room for two days, just thinking and breathing, meditating, all this right. stuff where he's he's occupying. We've talked to him about the Dalai Lama and other stuff. He is on a spiritual journey. I, I don't know if you thought it was a hokey question or not, but I liked asking him the kind of stuff about being uh, being Keanu Reeves in the Matrix, because I don't believe you could play the position as well as he plays it if you don't have a mastery of calm around what looks like chaos. Well, and also you can kind of go about handling the external pressures in two different ways kind of be oblivious to them or not really deal with them at all and just i'm playing quarterback this is what i do or because he's way too smart for that kind of deal with him on an emotional and spiritual level which is what you asked him about i don't think it's hokey i think it's who he is and clearly he likes to talk about it but i do find immensely interesting that i need to step away from this i understand there's external pressures there's adam Schefter reports and Ian Rappaport reports and draft night and all this stuff that's happened to me and i still need to make a rational decision but i need to get my mind in the right place in order to do it but being 50 50 again coming off an mvp season heading into a season where they will be Super Bowl favorites once again, the fact that he was this close, or not this close, but 50-50 on retiring, it's it's stunning. The fact that the relationship, which you've chronicled so much on, on this show about uh, him and management and how much that has deteriorated, how much he feels failed, how much he feels not communicated to, nearly resulted in one of the greatest players of all time retiring on top while also not. People will probably dismiss that. Oh, whatever, you were 50-50. But clearly, he was hurt. The recall as well on the interceptions where he's knowing, he's seeing them in his head. He's like, oh, that's Grant. That's number 42. Like, he's he's replaying them in the head. Interceptions from seven years ago, or in one case, 16 years ago. Touchdowns from 16 years ago. Random running backs that had 100-yard games who then fumbled. Is it Jarek Williams? He had Eric? the details yeah, right. Yeah. You were looking him up yeah, while, yeah. He was, while he was going, and he had almost all of the details right. Yeah on every single game. I also enjoyed the rare glimpse into not the arrogance, but the supreme confidence, which was when he was talking about, well, I kind of helped revolutionize this position. The game is different now than when I started as a quarterback. That was super interesting. Throwing for a bunch of touchdowns and not very many interceptions was rare. You saw a bunch of guys back when I started throwing double-digit interceptions. Now, every season, I looked at the interception charts, like, high is 12 now. He's so right about that. I him Hearing him say, you never hear that, hearing him say, I revolutionized the position, I changed the way the game was played, because we're all now caretakers with the football. Hey, if you enjoyed what we did this week, we got a good one for you next week. Ken Burns, the famed historian and documentary, will be on with us. And we ask you again, we've got some new listeners here. Whenever we get a guest of the size and magnitude of Aaron Rodgers, we ask you to rate, subscribe, and review the Levitard and Friends Network. South Beach Sessions. is follow. Follow, not subscribe. We're following because subscribe kind of you're paying. So okay. it's, a, it's a free product. So we're following wherever it is you get your podcast. And the good news, Zan, with the new terminology comes a new metric because all you got to do is follow and you don't have to worry like you did with subscriptions that they would just lapse after not listening for a while because some people may just come to South Beach Sessions for the big interviews, Dano. That's just the way of the world. But now they can follow and not listen to another episode and we get credit for it. So yeah. do that for us, please.
Where'd that begging voice come from? It hasn't been here the entire time. It just swooped in, parachuted in to beg for some follows. Pathetic. Ken Burns next week. We'll talk to you then. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley, SAB, the CV, copyright 2024, Proximo, Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.